0: We're gonna be in the Psalms. We've been journeying through them. Uh, It's actually over time. I had five Psalms originally planned, but man plans and God laughs. So my plans are out the door. I grabbed another one. This is one of my favorites. And the reason why I grabbed it, I think there's two reasons. The first one is if you've been a Christian for any time, you know that there are different tribes in the body of Christ. And how they see coronavirus is different. So if you followed, there's been some Pentecostal churches that have said, hey, forget the band, we're gathering, we're getting together, we're gonna do this. And it's not surprising that the Pentecostal side would do that because they have a, I don't know the right word to say, but an elementary faith in God that's super cool. Like, hey, God's with us. What are we afraid of? Kind of that, which, which is admirable. But it can get um, weird, I guess. You get snake handlers and people drinking poison or you've been to a church where you're like, ah, oh, this is strange, right? So there's a really good side to it, but, but look out. So I think that's the first reason why the Pentecostals are like, we're gonna gather. But the second reason is, when it comes to church, the priority of, of a Pentecostal church is, it's the praise, right? It's the, it's the let's praise God. Where We're more preaching. Both are good. Their focus is praise. And to praise well, you have to gather. Let's be honest. Um, we do praise still. But how many of you at home are actually singing? There's like two of you, right? Two of you that are like, I'm gonna sing. If if you've tried, I've I've watched a live stream or two. And, you you know, it's, do I sing? What do I do right now? It's just this weird kind of like, mmm. So they're like, hey, we're gonna get together. We want to experience God because that's really important to them. So that was the first thing that, I think Psalm 63 hits this. And the second one is a cultural thing. Um, Since 2006, young people have been getting their driver's licenses less and less. Like it just, it went up from like the 1950s, like just, we're going up. And then it just, 2006, and it's been going down ever since. And people are trying to figure out like, why isn't it a big deal anymore? Because when I was 16, it was like the thing to do. You went and got your driver's license. Why isn't it the thing to do anymore? And it may be that um, it's hard to drive a car when you're on your smartphone, so... They're choosing not to, and parents now are more willing to just chauffeur their kids everywhere, and so, hey, why, why should I do this? And there's Uber, and there's Lyft, and, and, but those kind of came after 2006. And, and what I think the real reason is, is this generation, 2006, 16-year-olds and above, um, they value an experience above possessions, and that's been found out by every logistic you can get. That if they're going to save up their money, it's not to buy a car necessarily or a Volkswagen bug. It's to buy a passport and go have an experience. And there's a part of me that says that's pretty cool. Because it took my generation a lot longer to figure out possessions. They don't really do it. And maybe they're figuring this out earlier. Uh, The other side, though, is their experience has to then be Put on Instagram and, and maybe we're creating narcissistic actors where the whole world is their stage. I don't know. But I do admire the hey, let's have an experience. Right? So those played into this psalm right here. Because the psalms, if if you're new to this, there's a part of scripture that it blends head and heart, knowledge and experience. They're smart. They're thoughtful. They're intense. They're theological. They're emotional. They're, they have sensory in them, right? Taste and see, right? They got all that. Well, how do you taste and see that God is good? Do you go to McDonald's and order a God burger? Like, what is he saying there? So that, that's the Psalms. Like there's, but if you have tasted and seen, you know something. So Psalm 63, here is the context in which it was written. Most likely, David, King David, has been ousted from his throne by his own son. He's fleeing, he's running for his life because his son is putting together an army to chop off his dad's head. Not a pretty picture. So David has gathered his crew, They're running from the city. There's this guy that doesn't like him who's actually throwing rocks at David as he runs. And he's got to run out to the wilderness, to the desert. And he's out there and in the desert, he gets reminded of something. Every great man, every great woman has gone through wilderness, desert, dry times. And deserts are really good for something. They remind us of what matters. So let's read Psalm 63. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary. Beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night for you have been my help and in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me but those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall shall be a portion for jackals, but the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult for the mouths of liars will be stopped. Brilliant Psalm. So I'm gonna try something different than what I've done through the first five Psalms. Uh, Those Psalms, typically, I have enough material to do four or five messages on one of those Psalms. I just choose what I want to talk about. It's it's the condensed nature of poetry of Psalms. Uh, So what I want to show is you can take one verse and you can think about that one verse all day long. It's called meditation. Just one verse. That's all you need. In the morning you read it, you put it to mind, and then you just think about this one verse. And we're gonna do that on a super brilliant verse. We're gonna do it on verse three. So I'll read it again for you. Here's what verse three says. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So we're gonna just grab this one verse and pick it apart and see what it has in it. So it begins by David saying, number one, because this is motive. He's giving now the motivation for what he's gonna talk about. And I can argue, I think very well, that a key to life is your motivation. And in the desert time, in the wilderness time, I think there's no better opportunity to start evaluating what are my motivations? What actually motivates me? What am I trying to do when I am meeting with God? Am I trying to get something from God? Because that's called paganism. Paganism was a way that you could make a God indebted to you, you had a formula. Okay, I'll read 10 chapters of the Bible. I'll pray for 20 minutes. I'll tithe 10%. Then God has to give me that woman for my wife. Well, the Bible says that fails. So God over and over will say this. These people honor me with their lips. They do the formula right, but their hearts are far from me. Heart motivation matters. I think we already know that. I'll try to give you a practical illustration. So I've done my share of marriage counseling, and here's what I've noticed can happen between a husband and a wife as time goes on. There can be this conversation where the wife says to the husband, "Hey, you have stopped, fill in the blank. You've stopped kissing me goodbye before you go in the morning. You've stopped giving me hugs." You've stopped making me coffee in the morning or tea in the morning. You've stopped um, saying, I love you. You've stopped, whatever it is, right? There's this, hey, you've stopped this thing. So the husband says, note to self, I need to do more, kiss in the morning, hug, make coffee, take the trash out, whatever it is, right? A note to self, I need to do that, right? So then that night, the husband's like, ding, ding, oh yeah, so, hey, honey, hug, I love you. He's like, good, I got it. And the wife will say, the only reason why you hugged me, you kissed me was because I told you to. And the, wife, and the husband says, absolutely, that's the only reason why I did it, yes. And the wife will say, well, it doesn't mean anything then. If I have to tell you, it doesn't mean anything. And husbands say, ah, this is way too complicated. But here's what your wife is saying. She's saying, I want our life together to be motivated by something that is not an alarm on your iPhone that goes off at 8.30 at night that says, tell your wife you love her. They've got apps now that actually you can outsource and it will send your wife random texts throughout the day. Hey, sweetie, thinking of you, even though you weren't. Hey, I love you, even though you hadn't said that, right? That's not, that's honoring with your lips, but hearts aren't there. So here's here's, your wife, and it's always dangerous to say, this is what your wife is saying. But she's saying, I want the love that you have for me, the relationship that we have together to just cause this to happen naturally, for you to be in this flow where it just comes out of you. It's shaped by something. Motivation really, really matters. So David says, because, because. Now, before we move in, I got to make one note. He begins by saying, my soul, it thirsts for you, God. To know thirst, you have to also know what it means to be hydrated, right? You have to know the opposite. To know you're thirsty, you also have to have known, hey, this is what it feels like to have drank water, You've got to know both of those things. So David here is saying, your presence, I've known it in the past. And now in this desert time, I want that presence again. I'm desperate for it. And I hope this is encouraging. Maybe some of you feel like God's presence isn't there right now. Like you're not experiencing it the way you want to. And you're like, what's wrong with me? Nothing, nothing. It's actually healthy. You have experienced God in such a way that you want to get back to that same experience again. And that's super healthy, right? Does that make sense? That in order to have an appetite for something, you have to have tried it before. You have to have known it before. I'll give you an example, a random one. So I lived in a country called Vanuatu for a year. And my friends, the students there, they're about my same age. They had this delicatessen they loved Their soul thirsted for it. And it was something that they would talk about all the time and be like, oh, if only we could have some of this, our life would be perfect. What was it? It was these animals that are called flying foxes. They're giant bats, they have wingspans of six feet, they're huge. And if the students saw, a flying fox, man, they would earnestly seek that thing. They would go running after it. They'd take these sticks. They'd just start chucking sticks at this flying fox to try to wing it, to bring it down, to eat it because, oh, it was so good. So when a flying fox came over, the students would rush off. Guess what I did? I just sat there because I had no appetite for a flying fox. I had never tried one and I did not plan on trying one. I didn't want it, right? Because I'd never tasted it. So I had no appetite for it. What David is saying is this, I've tasted and I've seen how good God's presence is. And now I am thirsting for that same spot again. And if that's you, that is a healthy place to be. It's a good place to be. Because there are appetite suppressants when it comes to our pursuit of God. So the soul is like a stomach. You can feed your soul Good food, joy food, or you can feed it junk food. You can feed it garbage, and it leads to shallowness and uh. So what's garbage for a soul? Well, sin. Sin is an appetite suppressant. It makes you no longer search for God. It begins to dull you, right? It's like your mom said, hey, don't eat that cookie or you will ruin your appetite. Don't eat that fruit. Over there, or it will ruin your appetite. And we gotta be careful of those things. If I don't have this thirst for God, then what I do personally is I pray Psalm 139, 23, and 24, which says, God, search my heart, right? Try me, know me, see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me on the way everlasting. God, get me back to where I have the right thirst for you, Right? So David has this motivation because he's, he's been around the things of God and he's saying, I'm thirsty. So because, now he gets theological. Because, number two, your steadfast love. This is the Hebrew word, hased. It's the covenant love of God. It's actually a super hard word to translate. Like, so if you look at different translations, they're all trying to figure out how do we take this word has and all that it means and turn it into a couple of words in the Bible. It's that kind of difficult word. So here's the best way I've been able to explain it. Um, maybe when you're dating your spouse, There might've come a time and there was with my wife when we were dating and we're seeing each other where it's like, why me? Why do you love me? That's a dangerous question, isn't it? Like, how do you answer that? If your spouse asks you, why do you love me? How do you answer that? Because if I was to say to charity, well, I love you because of your beautiful hair. What if God forbid she gets cancer and has to go through chemo and her hair falls out? Then does my love fall out? Because it was based on that, or if I say, "Well, it's your beautiful skin." Well, age is gonna change that. So, as age changes her skin, does it change my love? Is it because, well, you're a trophy wife? So when I walk around, I love to see guys look at me and be like, "What's up with that guy? What did he do right? Does he have money?" No, he showed up in a Volkswagen. He doesn't have money. He must have got game then, right? Oh, I like that. Well, what if that changes? What you know? What if there's a horrific accident and something happens? Right? D- does does it change? My love, does that make sense? Is it, well, I love you because you're such a good cook. What if she changes and goes gluten and I've got to eat cardboard bread from then on? Right? What, what happens then? What if it's, no, I love you because you're style. What if she changes her style and says, hey, we're, we're going to start dressing like, like metrosexuals and you got to wear these funny pants now, man-prees or something, What's gonna happen then? Or she goes cowboy on me and it's Wranglers and jeans and I have to trade in my Volkswagen for a Humvee. Am I like, get the lawyer, not doing it. Does that make sense? Like, it's precarious. It's tenuous when you say, well, I love you because of this characteristic. All right, so this brings me to hasad. This word hasad is really simple. It's God saying, I love you because I love you, period. So you can read Deuteronomy 7. And in Deuteronomy 7, God starts talking about, hey, here is why I chose you guys. And in verse 7, he says this, listen, I placed my affection upon you, not because you're the most numerous people. In fact, you're the fewest. It's God explaining his said. I chose you not because of your style or because you can cook food or because of your looks or because of your ability or any precondition. I love you because I love you. And I chose to love you. And because it's not based on you, my love is never gonna change for you. And that's what David says, oh, that's my motivation. Yes, because David knew his own failings. The son that had kicked him out of his own house and run him out and was trying to cut off his head. Well, that son got on dad's bad side because another son raped a daughter and that son took care of the business that dad should have been taking care of and he didn't take care of. And then the son goes into isolation for a while. He gets invited back in, but dad won't see him for year after year after year after year. And David now knows, man, I made some big mistakes here. Not excusing his behavior, but man, i made some big, big mistakes. But in spite of his shortcomings, in spite of his failings, he knows this. God's covenant love for me is unchanging. Oh, that's a said. It's brilliant. Because of your covenant, steadfast love. Oh, and this is what he says about that love. Number three. It's better than life. He has this comparison, right? And as a king, he's got a lot to compare to. As a king, he's saying, if I look at life with everything that it has, your has said is better than life. So whatever you or I think would be life. If I could just get on a isolated desert island right now and get away from this disease, that would be life. If I could just get in a bunker and hunker down with a 50 years worth of supplies, that would be life. If I could just get to Hawaii right now because no one's there, I want to go there. If I could just go to Disneyland because there's no lines. If I could just go to Merlin because that place is awesome. Like whatever you would say is life, David says, God's has said is better than that. Now why would he say that? Would he say that because, oh, your said is something interesting to think about? No way, because David had experienced God's said. And by experiencing God's said, he now knew there's nothing better than it. So Christianity, it's a cerebral thing. We're supposed to think, right? Use our minds. Be full, right? Some religions, they say, empty your mind, contemplate your navel, you know, go to escape from things, just be nothing, that's not Christianity. Christianity is fill your mind, think, know, right over and over. Put your mind into heaven. Historically, those that study these things say Christianity was so successful against paganism because its people outlived others, meaning they just enjoyed life. They outdied others, they ran to plagues and hard situations when others would run from it, and it outthought them as well. That these great thinkers, Augustine, Erasmus, Luther, Calvin, you know, Aquinas, that the list is massive of these men that thought through seriously about the way things are supposed to be. But it doesn't stop with our head. That's the great thing about this faith. It's to sink in. We're supposed to also experience something. That's why the Psalms are so full of sensory language, taste and see, right? The, the, God's law is sweeter than honey. So how do you do that? How do you taste and see? Do you need Jesus toast, like where he appears? Like, how, how do you do this? And this idea of experience doesn't end in the, in the Old Testament. It's brought into the New Testament. So Ephesians three, nineteen says this. It says, that we might know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. When does something surpass knowledge? I would argue it's when you experience it. So when my wife was pregnant with our first Carissa, 20 years ago, we went to the Lamaze class. I read books on parenting and all that kind of stuff. and. Other dads would tell me, hey, there's nothing like being a dad. And I remember thinking, and maybe it's in my arrogance and just my personality, what's the big deal? I mean, come on, let's not blow this out of proportion. You guys are making this too big. I mean, come on, I've had a dog. You feed him, you play with them, come on. How could this be much different? And then I had Carissa. Oh, how different it was. See, before, I had facts. But then when I held Carissa, I had feelings, I had heart, wow, wow. When you've experienced God's said that deep, steadfast love that's poured into you by God's spirit, when you experience it, what you know is this, that was better than life. Because ultimately you and I were designed for God's said. New Testament word, agape, very similar. We are designed for that. And when you experience it, really experience it, you know, that's it. And you thirst for it like David. So David's response to this is, because I've got this motivation, your has said, my theology about your covenant love for me in, in spite of my own failings, it's better than anything else. So here is what comes out of him. So because of that, My lips will praise you. Praise. He has to praise. He's not manipulated into praise. He's not forced into praise. He cannot help it. Out of the overflow of what he knows about God and what he understands, he says, I have to praise you, God. I must praise you. Isn't that our nature? Isn't our nature when we experience something that's so big and so incredible that we have no choice but to praise? Sports will do that. A great concert where there's music can do that. Like it's almost comical to me. I went to the Civil War this last year. I had great tickets because my wife's uncle was a coach there for like 15 years. So we're in a box seat, just amazing. And there was a touchdown and everybody's up, you know, the whole stands are up and everyone's cheering and you can see people and inside this room, they're doing it too. They're looking at each other and they're saying this. Did you see that? Well, of course, right? We're all here. No, no, it was on my smartphone, I missed it. We all saw it, but you have to say that. Did you see that? Even though we both saw it, you still had to say, did you, you have to praise it? Because we're built up. When you experience God's has said, it's the best evangelism course in the world. You have to tell people about it. You have to say, did you see that? Church is always trying to figure out like, how do you get believers to act like believers? Well, let's have this discipleship course and those are good. Let's teach some theology and that's good. There's theology in here. The best evangelism, the best discipleship course in the world is if you experience his has said. If not, it's a bummer. Hey, go knock on accountability group, go knock on five doors and tell people about Jesus. Well, I tried it on one door and I'm like, do you, do you want to know about Jesus? No? Okay, let's go. Right? It can be super bad, but when you know his has said, you explode. David would be a Jesus freak, that's what he'd be. So if you just read verse six, He goes, I meditate on you in the watches of the night. Every four hours, I just wake up because I'm overwhelmed with who you are and I just start praising you. Oh, you're so good. You've got to praise. What a brilliant, brilliant verse. That's what you can do with the Psalms. You read them in the morning. You chew on them all day long saying, God, what is in this for me today? He just starts to reveal to you and then you experience something, life-changing. So in conclusion, let me try to make this point. David pens this psalm when he's in a wilderness, when he's in a desert, when he's thirsty. I love deserts. Not because they're fun. They're dry, they're difficult, they're discouraging, but deserts tell you what matter. And David says this, I need God more than I need water when I'm in the desert. He gets to what matters. Forget the tent remodel, that can wait. Forget fixing up my six horse chariot, that's just not gonna happen. I'm desperate for God. I think we're in a desert time. Here's what's sad about our culture. Our culture is so good at distracting us in the deserts, so good. So instead of seeking the living water, we seek other things and we become these dehydrated zombies. It's sad. Like sports, don't sports do that? Like You can get so involved in sports, and I'm not down on sports. I think sports have their spot. But people can get so involved in sports, reading about you know, this guy and what's happening here, and it's insane, it takes over their life. And then you watch sports and then when the sports come on, they talk about the other distraction, like all the pharmaceuticals now. Oh my goodness, it's insane to me. And always the symptoms are crazy. Like you watch the ad for a pharmaceuticals and it's like, hey, do you feel tired? Well, yeah. Well, maybe Zippy, ask your doctor if Zippy is right for you. I don't need to ask him, I need that. Or whatever it is, right? They're always peddling these things that are just more distractions when you should be like evaluating, where am I at right now? I'm kind of glad sports got canceled. I, if, if my heart is set on just sports in the next season, maybe this is good. Maybe God knows what he's doing right now. And I'm not anti-medication and I'm not anti-sports, but I am pro-meditation. And deserts are designed by God to get us to be desperate. Do not squander this desert. Do not squander this time. There is a battle right now for your brain. So we're being sold this thing that says, isolate yourself and watch TV. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that. Go isolate yourself and watch TV. Some men are like, I've been preparing for this my whole life, man. Sign me up. Sad to me. It would be a bummer to emerge from this desert as a bunch of idiots. I hope we're not doing that. I hope we're Psalm 63 people. That's what I hope for. So, Thursday morning, my wife has been running. So she got up. Everybody's running right now. If you noticed that? Everyone's like, I gotta stay healthy. <laughs> More runners than I've ever seen in my life. So she's running at 6.30 or at 4.30. She gets up at 4.30. So when she got up, I got up. So it was earlier than I like. I go out to my study and I was actually studying Psalm 63, this message. And she came home about 7.30 and she had on her phone this app that just, it just reads the Bible. And it was reading Psalm 100 and I came in, I started making a fire. I just was listening to Psalm 100 and 101 and 102 and all the way up to Psalm 110, like about 20 minutes. I just listened. I'll tell you, it was glorious. Hearing the Psalms just read to me. It was like, oh, water for my soul. I tasted and I saw that like God is good in that moment, just listening to Psalms being read. So COVID-19 is being said that it has brought America to her knees. Probably true. My only question is, what are we bowing before? Are we bowing before entertainment and television and fear? Fear? And I hope not. I hope we're bowing before the Lord, God, our maker, and that we experience his said during this time in such a way that it transforms our future. We have the opportunity of a lifetime right now. Revival in our own hearts. Revival, I think, in our nation. Like more people are tuning in right now to Jesus, that I think has happened since maybe going back to September 11th, 2001. This is one of those massive things. Oh, let's use this time. So Jesus today, as we go to your table, may we taste and may we see that you're good. For those that have been desperate and longing for you, may they know that's so healthy. It's Psalm 63, healthy. Because we've we've been satiated. We've been hydrated, if you would, by you before. And we want that again. So may, as we come to the table and partake, I ask that you would meet us here. You'd meet us in this simple act of remembering you. Just like David remembered you in verse six, we're supposed to remember you each time we take these elements and partake, tasting and seeing your goodness, your agape, your hased for us. So may that happen today, I pray. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.